New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. How did the trauma of the First World War follow a baseball legend home, sending both his game and his life into downward spirals? Returning to introduce us to this tragic Hall of Famer is Jim Leak. He brings us the best team over there. The untold story of Grover Cleveland Alexander and the Great War. Hello, history lovers, and welcome back. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the Rutgers baseball cap to everybody watching today via our YouTube channel. And since you are watching via YouTube, you can see this book. This is a bio of Grover Cleveland, the only man to have served two non-consecutive terms as President of the United States. He is not to be confused with the topic of today's book. That is Grover Cleveland Alexander, but people called him Pete. He is a legendary name in his own right, and he's also a person we can learn a lot about the Great War from, because a key factor in his career was the time he spent serving in the Great War. That has been overlooked in his life, but it's overlooked no more thanks to today's guest. Visit our archives wherever you're listening now for my previous conversations with Jim Leak. Those covered Howell Storm, New York City's official rainmaker, and the 1950 drought. Nine innings for the king, the day wartime London stopped for baseball, July 4th, 1918. From the dugouts to the trenches, baseball during the Great War, and his Civil War novel for young readers, Matty Boy. Follow Jim on his Twitter handles, which are at Jim Leak and WW1Baseball. Okay, now that we've put on our gas masks over the old baseball caps, let's find our seats in the stands and enjoy the sublime and tragic tale of the best team over there. I'm joined via Zoom by Jim Leak. He's the author of The Best Team Over There, the untold story of Grover Cleveland Alexander and the Great War. Jim, thanks so much for coming back on the History Author Show. Oh, thanks for having me back again. I appreciate it. Anytime. And, you know, I sincerely mean that because I always enjoy your books. I get something out of them that I didn't know before, and I read some pretty obscure stuff, and I always enjoy a story like Howl Storm, which was your previous book, which talks about this weather, which he really was back then, even though he was a man of science. I don't mean to put him down. And now a name that we know that we hear often, or now and then anyway, especially in your circles, baseball circles, Grover Cleveland Alexander. You start off the best team over there with a line about him, though, that's sad. It's really poignant. It's a little bit of a downer that I could see some editors might not want you to choose. And that is Grover Cleveland Alexander, a 63-year-old alcoholic, died alone in a rented room in St. Paul, Nebraska. Were there other moments in his life because he has such a really sweeping story from the war to baseball to back to baseball again to the sad decline in his later years? What made you decide to start his story or start your story with his end? Well, you know, I never really considered any other beginning. Um, That just seemed the natural point to me. Uh, It seems that just about everyone 
who knows baseball knows how uh, Pete Alexander ended up. And to understand how he got there, you have to understand what happened to him during World War I. So that was sort of a classic journalism lead, that first sentence. That's what it came out of. And that was just naturally the place I started. Grover Cleveland Alexander shares the name of our only U.S. president to serve non-consecutive terms. And so here in the best team over there, you're choosing somebody who goes with a famous name and makes it his own, which is not easy to do at all. And also, then when I thought a little farther, put my writer's hat on, I realized this Grover is similar to the other Grover in that his career is broken up by the Benjamin Harrison of the Great War. What was the starkest change in his game and his life? Yeah, it's just about everything changed, I think. Uh, before the war, Pete Alexander was one of the, already one of the great pitchers of baseball. Uh, the three seasons leading up to World War I, he won 30 games or more each of the three seasons. And the, the other person who had done that was uh, Christy Mathewson, the great Christy Mathewson. And after the war, uh, Alexander was still a fine pitcher, but he wasn't Alexander the Great anymore. He played until 1930, but he never had that cachet. He never had that real greatness that he had before. He, he struggled, he, he occasionally triumphed, he played a long time, but he was a different man after the war. You mentioned his greatness and that nickname, Alexander the Great, and it reminded me of something that Cubs star Johnny Evers said. He said, he made me want to throw my bat away. And I thought, what a great, what a great way to describe it if you're a fellow player to say, I, wanted to, I just wanted to completely give up the game. What a, what a really high compliment from one major league player to another and a guy who they're all rivals. These guys all have egos. Just how good was Alexander as a pitcher before he trades in that Phillies uniform for khaki? He was a tremendous pitcher uh, all along. And, and he continued as a good pitcher after the war. And he ended up tied with uh, Matthewson for third on the, on the list behind uh, Cy Young and uh, Walter Johnson. Uh, he and Matthewson had 373 wins between them, that, each, I should say. And nobody's going to reach that figure again for a lot of reasons. But uh, even in his day, that's an astounding number, I think. <laughs> and when you look at his numbers, you say there's no asterisks that you could look at or things you could argue, really, that take away from his greatness. When you read the book, you see he was one of those people that was born for the game. You wonder what else he would have done if he didn't get to play. He really loved it. And it's sad to see that serving his country going over there in the Great War, which is invoked in your title, it stole away so much of that from him. It took a lot away from him, but it took a lot away from a lot of players, I think. Many of the players who came back in 1919 had down years. It wasn't just Pete. Uh, he was 16 and 11. That's hardly a down year. A lot of people would, would love to have a 16 and 11 year. But for Pete Alexander, it was a down year. He won 27 games in another year, but he, he was struggling the whole time. Uh, he wasn't the, the free and easy uh, Pete Alexander of uh, before the war.
He serves in the 342nd Field Artillery Regiment. And as we've discussed with your previous books, not only do people today not even conceive of the fact that a Derek Jeter or a Michael Jordan would put on the uniform and go fight in a war. It's just not how things are right now. Fortunately, it did happen with the New York Rangers, by the way. The reason that they didn't repeat with the Stanley Cup after 1940 is so many of those guys served in World War II. But in the case of the best team over there, these guys apply a lot of those skills. We've spoken before in nine innings for the King, how the throwing of baseball is very similar to throwing a grenade when you're over there in the trenches. That comes in really handy for these fellas. How much was work, though, and how much was play for these major leaguers when they get over there and there's things like exhibition games and they're serving? How much real fighting are they doing? Well, uh, it depends on who you're talking about. There were quite a number of military service baseball teams, especially in the United States. Some of those teams, you know, they were show teams. Men on them never fought. The 342nd, that wasn't, that wasn't the case. The regiment and the division, the 89th Division, they had set out to assemble great sports teams, and they had them. But unlike some other teams, they were also combat units. They played ball in the States. When they got to France, they were in training for a while. They played ball on Sundays, but the, the training and, and the duty came first. And when they went to the front, the, the baseball was just forgotten. It was put aside. Um, so the 342nd was in action for seven straight weeks until the armistice. There was no, you know, nobody was thinking about baseball then except, you know, when, when you would have a down moment, you would think, oh, I wonder what the, the boys are doing back home. But nobody was really planning for games or thinking about games or that type of thing. They say there's no atheists in the trenches. I guess the same for celebrities, for these guys. Everybody was just trying to stay alive. And if listeners know anything about the Great War, they know of the horrors of those trenches and this first really mechanized warfare and this real killing field that they had over there. That's right. Uh... When you're on the front, you aren't a ball player anymore. You were a soldier and you better remain a soldier and concentrate on being a soldier or you aren't going to be a ball player or anything else. Why does he go over there? Because you'd think, I know that these guys didn't want to serve, but also that there was pressure on the teams to let them serve and hear these healthy guys when, say, my brother, my son, my father's going to serve. Why aren't they serving? Well, what was his personal story that you tell here in the best team over there? For Grover Cleveland Alexander? Well, his personal story is not that different from hundreds of thousands or millions of other stories. He didn't rush out to enlist. When he was registered in the draft, he claimed his mother as a dependent and it wasn't allowed. For a while, he thought about joining the Navy, but he, he never really reached that point. But when his number came up and his local draft board says, okay, it's time for you, for you to report. He did report. He went willingly. He didn't gripe about it. Um, he, he may not have been an enthusiastic soldier. As I say, he didn't enlist, but he was a soldier and he became a good soldier. Uh, you know, it was his duty to go. He went and he did very well and he rose to sergeant, you know, a position of some responsibility and uh, he did well. He, he became a soldier. He became an artilleryman. And uh, that's where he remained until he came home. 
why artillery? Why did they think his skills would fit there? Or was it just a question of let's fill some bodies in these positions and that's what they needed? It was more a case of the 342nd already had a number of major league ball players and collegiate football stars and that type of thing. As I say, they were gathering athletes for their teams. So the artillery came and, and got him, essentially. Uh, he didn't choose it. They chose him. But by the time he actually got through uh, the initial training and reported to his regiment, they were getting ready to leave. Uh, pretty much as soon as he got there, they left for the East Coast and they were there a couple of weeks and then they went aboard ship and uh, traveled to England and then across England to France and then into, into further training. So when he first joined the regiment, he was barely a soldier, uh, barely trained at all. And that wasn't particularly unusual either. Now, even in his own regiment, there were men who had just reported, gone through the barest of training, got to the regiment, and the regiment left. They didn't really learn their business of uh, being artillerymen until they went into uh, a training camp in France. I wanted to mention that you're an author that puts out such good content so rapidly. And I never quite know how to give an author that compliment because it's easy to say you're a factory, but that doesn't sound particularly complimentary. <laughs> but I, I want people to know how much you put into these books and the little touches. And every time I see Jim Leak, that name on a cover, I know that it's going to be a book that is so deeply researched and yet such a really quick read. It's not a hard read. It doesn't linger. You can see it's about the same length, I guess, if people can see behind me watching on YouTube as the previous book, Howl's Storm, maybe a little bit thicker than that, but you do little things. It, it, it's always a little bit different. And one of the things you do here in the best team over there is you set off your chapters with quotes by Lieutenant Grantland Rice. Why choose Rice's words to act as moments of reflection for your readers. And do you have a favorite one in there or maybe one that you wanted to include and you didn't because it seems as if he wrote something for every occasion. Well, I was surprised about Grant Lennon Rice's war poetry. I, I really didn't realize. I knew he had served. I knew he had been an artillery officer himself and, and served overseas. Um, I had a few of his poems and I just, I just started digging a little deeper into Rice, into, into the poems. And I came up with about 75 war poems that he wrote shortly before, during, and after he came home. And uh, they were surprisingly good. I, I don't know what I expected. I suppose, you know, some of his, his sport poems were, are, are very light and, and casual and funny. The, the war poems, by and large, were not that. Uh, they have real emotion to them. Some of them have real power to them. And I used quite a number of them. Uh, he wrote about 75 altogether. The one I like best is the one I start the book with, and I, I've got it here. It's shadows of years, ghosts of old days, shadows and ghosts in the grip of fate. Is it only a dream through the winter haze when the drill is long or the big guns wait? And this was written while he was in the army, but before he was at the front himself. And you, you can just sense the dread and the anticipation and the wanting to belong, I think. And 
that just seemed the place to start to me. In fact, Shadows and Ghost was the working title for the book while I was working on it. Uh, I still don't know what I'm going to do with the assembled <laughs> war poems of Grantland Rice, but I was glad I did it. If nothing ever comes of it, it was a, a real experience. And it, um, it told me a lot about the man that I hadn't known or even suspected. Really. Seems like the kind of guy who could take over this book if you let him. <laughs> Grantland Rice, he would say, oh, wow, you said a really good turn of phrase there. And he was there, I wasn't, so maybe I'll jam that in. But you always seem to distill everything down. It's, a, again, a credit to you as an author that you're able to take what I know is really voluminous research, and yet you get it down to the key moments. And we feel almost as if we're reading a really good sports column, which is again, a credit to you. I don't feel as if I just read a full book. I sat down and I just started going through it and you kind of left them wanting more from the old show saying, I said, oh, hey, but it's, it's plenty. It's the guy's whole life. But partially, I think, because people wanted more of Pete Alexander. They wanted more of this great baseball player at the time, I'm sure. And he wanted more of his life too. He seems like he wished that he could have done more. And he was always striving, even in, even in the last years of his life, he was trying to be able to enjoy himself, live, feel like he did the right things, feel like he certainly did baseball well. He wanted to go back to baseball, wished he had more years for that. But uh, what you said there was so key. He didn't complain. No, he really didn't complain. And he had a lot that he could have complained about. He had uh, health problems. He had emotional problems. He had physical problems. The last decades of his life were tough, but he hardly ever complained. I mean, I read a lot about Peter Alexander. I read a lot of coverage of him. I read a lot about what other people said of him. And he was fairly, very highly regarded by just about everybody. Uh, except, except when he was drinking heavily after the war. That's where an awful lot of his problems came, and that's where whatever hard feelings did exist, that's, that was the, the cause of them. That was the, the root of them. But he had very little self-pity. I think he had pride in his service. He always loved baseball. And he tried to be a gentleman, mostly succeeded. He tried to be kind and mostly succeeded. Uh, I think it speaks very highly of the character of Grover Cleveland Alexander that he did as well as he did for as long as he did and was remembered so favorably by so many people. He earned his own place over there in respect from soldiers, which couldn't have been very easy for him either. No, if you're if you're a famous person, if you're a celebrity, and you're in the middle suddenly of sure. you know ordinary guys, uh, that that can be tough. Uh, but he handled it very well. Uh, the other people, the other athletes, and the other soldiers spoke highly of him. Uh, there, there's one little tidbit that's that's in the book that I, that I really love. There was a young second lieutenant. Um, newly joined with the regiment after the armistice. And uh, they were, he was out on the, uh, the picket line with the horses, the artillery horses, and it was cold and it was snowing. 
and, and Pete Alexander, Sergeant Alexander was out there. And, and Pete sort of lumbers up to this, this diminutive second lieutenant. We had no reason to respect other than the bar on his shoulder. And, and said, here, Lieutenant, take my gloves. You know, you're, you're cold. And the Lieutenant didn't want to take them, but Pete insisted that he wear his gloves because he was cold. And uh, that Lieutenant, you know, years later, remembered it, shared it in the American Legion magazine. And uh, he said, I, I'll tell you that story just to say what a, a gentleman he was. And yet again, a credit to your research because those things are such gems to find. And it makes me think back in my own life. And I, I think sometimes of people that I knew that have passed away. I know 25 years ago, this veterinarian that I worked for, Dr. Bill O'Reilly, and he said to me, how are you doing one morning? And I said, okay. And he said, you know, Dean, someday I want to walk in here, ask you how you're doing. And you say, great, Dr. O'Reilly, I'm great. And I think of that sometimes now when people ask me, and that's, that's 30 years ago now. And I think, you know, that, that's the kind of thing. Like with, when you're remembered for little things like that, you can remember it for bad things too. But it seems that so many people remembered Pete Alexander for just doing some little kindness or some little bit of bravery or some great act on the baseball field. He really was worthy of a book. And it's something that, as you allude to in this subhead here of the best team over there, he was forgotten that this part of his life was really not taken into account. Why was that? I don't think that's just uh, the account of uh, Pete Alexander's life. I think that's all too common in baseball histories. Uh, often you'll read uh, a book or an article about uh, a ball player who served during the war. And uh, that year, year and a half, is just almost glossed over, almost skimmed over. Oh. It's like, okay, he was the ball player. He had this timeout. He was a ball player again. Well, you can't do that. Well, you can do it. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. um, because I don't care who you are. I don't care when you served. If you served, you came out of that experience changed somehow. You might have been changed a little. You might have been changed a great deal. But you came out of it changed. And if you're writing about a person, who served in the armed forces. And you don't realize that you're doing your readers a disservice. So I try to fill in that gap. I mean, I'm not setting myself up as the veteran expert or anything, but to see Pete's story or other veteran ballplayers story uh, glossed over in that year, in that crucial year, year and a half, just, drives me crazy. So those are the stories I try to tell just to fill it in. Yeah, you take up for the guy because you respect him and he's your subject. You want to do him justice. Right. But I try to do it as straightforwardly as possible. He had a lot of problems. He had a lot of faults. I try not to gloss those over. Um, because the other thing about that period in, in the press of the time, um, you are either, for the most part, you, you're either a slacker who didn't serve, even if you worked at honorable jobs in a shipyard or a steel mill or whatever, or you were a hero because you went. Well, that's, that does injustice to both sides. 
you have to understand uh, the pressures on young men of the era, and they all were almost all young men. Uh, there weren't very many women in the service back then, unlike now. But you have to understand the, the, the pressures on these people and the decisions they had to make for themselves and for their families and for the country. And, and it's, it's way too easy to say, you should have joined, you should, and said you went to a shipyard, you're bum. Or you went into the service, you're a hero. Well, neither of those is necessarily true. It could be, but you really wanna look at the individual stories and see what was involved, what the motivations were, what the, what the pressures were, what the tide of history was. Um, they're individual stories. They're just not that simple. History never seems to be simple, does it? But it can be enjoyable, and it certainly is in, in your book that you've written and in all your books. I enjoy meeting these people. I hope listeners will enjoy it. I hope you're enjoying right now my conversation with Jim Leake. He is the author of the book we're talking about here and that we're praising, or I'm praising because he's too <laughs> modest to do it. It's called The Best Team Over There, The Untold Story of Grover Cleveland Alexander and the Great War. You can find him at the Twitter handles Jim Leak, as well as WW1Baseball. Jan Finkel, who earned the Society for American Baseball Research Bob Davids Award in 2012, writes of Jim's latest book, Coming off his award winning from the dugouts to the trenches, Jim Leake follows up with the extraordinary story of the Great War, Grover Cleveland Alexander, and ball players who became artillerymen. It's a perfect mix of military history and baseball that will completely absorb you. Jim, a headline in the Philadelphia Public Ledger sums up not only the misconception of how quickly our doughboys would lick the Germans and come back home, but also the mythical status that was attributed to this ball player in particular, but these guys in general. You just talked about that hero worship, the idea that they were all over there single-handedly taking on a battalion of Huns. How did that play into strategy on both sides? I imagine that the Kaiser's boys would have liked to get their hands on a high-profile target, and I imagine that our side wouldn't have wanted to let a guy like Grover Cleveland Alexander fall as a casualty because it will be a PR nightmare. It would really hurt morale. I think of how when the Germans shot down Quentin Roosevelt, for example, they went and took pictures and made postcards and that backfired on the Kaiser because they said, well, hey, here's a former president of our enemy who's fighting and where are your kids exactly, Kaiser Wilhelm? And they weren't there. So this is delicate for you to handle if you're in a war and you have a high profile person that's in uniform. So how did that affect where Grover Cleveland Alexander was sent and his service in the war? You know, surprisingly enough, it doesn't seem to have affected um, his service at all. I mean, he was essentially grabbed as a ball player, but once his regiment went, he went with them and nobody tried to pull him off the line or away from the front. He went where everybody else went. And that was true of other ball players. Once they went, they went. Hank Gowdy, the first active major leaguer to enlist, he was in the uh, Rainbow Division. He, he served all that time. He served honorably and well, and he was a huge, rightly so, a huge hero when he came home. Eddie Grant went, the retired ball player. 
of the giants and others. And Eddie Grant was killed in action in the Argo. Some of the papers called him uh, baseball's first gold star. He wasn't, but he was the first big name to die in in action. And, uh, you know, that got a lot of press and it couldn't have uh, helped morale. Uh, But Eddie Grant wouldn't have had it any other way. He was doing what he wanted to do. He would have objected, I think, to the hero worship. So Pete Alexander and, and, and most of the ballplayers who actually got into action, there were a good number of them, uh, not all of them by any means, but there were a, a good number. Uh, they did the best they could. And as I say, at the front, they weren't ballplayers anymore, uh, unless they were pulled out of action for a while and there was a pickup game somewhere. Uh, but once they went into action, uh, they were soldiers. They weren't ball players now, and they had to be soldiers. That was the job. That was job one. Was winning and coming home, as they say in the theme song. And I hope that listeners and viewers will stick around and listen. I'll play the full, full version of New York ain't New York anymore at the end, which is about that stark difference when the boys come home from the war and how much everything has changed and how much they have changed. And that's something that we still struggle with. There's still that stigma and there's still that machismo for lack of a better word, where if you're hurt, you don't want to say that you're hurt. And certainly you don't want to say things like there's an anecdote in here. I hope you'll tell about fireworks in the stands and how that might affect you. People remember the movie born on the 4th of July. There's that moment with Tom Cruise. He's watching the old soldiers before he goes to Vietnam and he's not understanding they're flinching or he's just taking notice of it passively. And he comes home and he has the same experience where the fireworks on the 4th of July, it, it causes him to have that shock moment and, and be really scared. And that's what we call today PTSD. Back in the days of Pete Alexander, they would have called it something different. They called it shell shock. They called it soldier's heart back during the Civil War and during the Prussian War, but it's all unfortunately the same thing, battle rattle in the Second World War. But it, all these euphemisms that we have that are covering something that's so serious and something else that's the traumatic brain injuries that we know more about now, but not nearly enough, I guess you'd say. And these are all things he just had to suffer with himself. And you tie that to his drinking and you talk about him maybe self-medicating. So talk about the trauma he had afterwards. Talk about things like that anecdote with the fireworks in the stands and how you think that contributed to his physical decline because of the slow slide into alcoholism. Right. Well, Pete Alexander's medical history is long and complicated and and it's hard to tease apart. I don't think anybody could do it at at this uh, long remove, but when he was in the, still in the minors in 1909, he was hit in the head with a baseball and, and was unconscious for quite a while and uh, had vision problems for quite a while. And, and people thought his career might be over. T- today, we would call that a traumatic brain injury, a TBI. Uh, back then, it was a baseball injury. Uh, he, he later developed epilepsy. Now, there, it's disputed whether he had it before, during, or after the war. Uh, I actually spoke with a uh, neurologist, and, and his opinion was that uh, it's more likely than not that he had the epilepsy before he was in the service, possibly connected with the TBI. Um, 
Pete didn't bring these up, these things up in his uh, draft physical examination or when he was into the service. I've seen some of the medical records and he just didn't mention it. And if he had, it's possible that he wouldn't have been in the service. Um, then you, he gets to France, he's in action. Um, he does seem to have developed shell shock, PTSD. Again, not that uncommon to, to some extent. Uh, he wasn't a hard drinker before the war. He said he never, he drank beer primarily until he got to France. That's where he started in on and hard liquor. And that got progressively worse. So you've got the, the TBI, which can affect decision-making and executive functions. You've got epilepsy developing at whatever point. You've got the shell shock, PTSD. You've got the, the drinking, the self-medication. Um, you, you've got depression that comes along with it. Um, and, you know, it, it can steamroll. It can, it can get out of hand. Uh, the story you were, you were mentioning was uh, one of the players when he was with the Cardinals in the 1920s, they were having a game somewhere and everybody was in the dugout and some kids in the, in the stands set up some fireworks. Well, some of the, the players on the bench jumped and, and uh, one of his teammates said, Pete just froze with this odd smile on his face. He just froze. It was odd enough that the, the teammate repeated this, you know, decades later. Um, so while he was playing, after he was playing, he had a, a hard road and um, he, he couldn't hold a job for any appreciable amount of time. Um, he was in and out of hospitals with any number of uh, problems. Uh, one of the medical forms was nervousness, which I suppose you could take for uh, shell shock. Uh, by, the, by 1940, uh, sports writers and, and journalists were actually writing uh, about Pete and shell shock. And one of them had sort of this heartbreaking line, fame didn't get him anything, shell shock, got to give him food and a, a bed in a hospital. That's, that's just heartbreaking stuff, I think. And he struggled all the rest of his life, all the rest of his life. And you can take that as, as a failure, which I think is completely wrong. You can, I, take, I would take it as a lifelong struggle. It's a lifelong battle. And he had that battle till, till the day he died. And to me, the miracle is that he did as well as he did for as long as he did. It's that he played till 1930, 373 wins. Yeah. It's, it's almost unbelievable. Uh, the, the great moments he still had after the war. Uh, you know, he disappointed a lot of people in a lot of ways, but he thrilled a lot of people in a lot of ways. Uh, that's that's the complex story of, of Pete and, and a lot of other people who weren't anywhere near as famous as he was. It has to be tough to have fame on top of it. It's one thing if you come home to your family and they 
say, Hey, you've changed. How come you don't do all these things you used to do? And, and you seem distant or you're, you're sullen or whatever it might be. But if somebody comes home missing a leg, you don't say, Hey, how come you don't want to dance anymore? Why, why aren't you dancing? Come on, get out there on the dance floor. You, you wouldn't even think of saying that to somebody because it's apparent the injury. And for Pete Alexander and the story you tell here in the best team over there. So heartbroken that because they were the best team, because they were the best players, because he was certainly this guy who was so great. You know how it is. Even when players don't go off to war, they just change teams and oh, the fans are giving you a hard time and saying, Oh, he's lost it. He's not good. I told you he was never that good boy to have all that piled on top of the fact that he's, surely waking up at night with nightmares and screaming and he's terrified by back then cars backfired all the time. I imagine he had a real, real problem with that every time that it happened, that it it adds so much to his story. And I'm glad you told it because it helps us remember now, maybe we do have that relative or that fraternity brother or somebody else who served. And we don't really understand why they act the way they do. And we just want things to go back to the old ways. And after the war, things really had changed so much individually and for the country. Right. And, you know, there wasn't really a great understanding of shell shock and PTSD back then. It's much, it's much better now, but even so, it's, it's not easy for, for anybody, any man or woman who came back from their service uh, with PTSD. Um, and as you say, the, the fame just complicated it. Uh, I think it made it worse for Pete in his hometown of St. Paul, Nebraska. Like after the Luzeri strikeout, you know, the famous strikeout in the 1926 World Series, uh, the, you know, the, the town held, held, held this celebration for him. And it's not clear what happened, but something happened and he disappointed a lot of people and they remembered it a long time. He died in his hometown of St. Paul alone in a rented room. He was unhappy that he had returned. He returned many times, but he was unhappy that time and he was getting ready to leave again. And there were hard feelings. And some bartenders wouldn't serve him anymore because it put them in a difficult place. And uh, after he died, his ex-wife, Amy, they married and divorced twice, but she still always stuck by him. She published some of his letters. So there were hard feelings in St. Paul, which was unfortunate all around, I think. Uh, but, it, you know, decades have passed. The hard feelings are gone. The people who had the hard feelings are gone. And, and now uh, St. Paul every summer has a Grover Cleveland Alexandra days. And it, it's a big deal. Nice. And, and uh, I'm glad they have it. And I think Pete would be glad that they have it. And uh, I wish he could uh, know about it. Maybe he does. I don't know. You said something that adds to that about him signing balls. And almost everyone seemed to have a ball that he had signed for them. And then even with that, there's the dichotomy. There's him being a great, beloved baseball player, but also that he traded a lot of them for drinks during this period. And imagine that in your hometown, you're You've gone, you've made it huge, as big as anyone could make it from this little town in Nebraska. Even today, it would be a big deal for for a small town in Nebraska. And yet he ends up falling on hard times, but he still wanted to be there. And I wanted to ask you about that because I'm sure people were always still coming up with him that remembered 
the happy moments, not the one that you just alluded to, but they remembered a big moment or they wanted to talk to him about the game. That's what bars are still for is to go there and talk about sports. Right. So I wanted to ask you, say we went there in 1950 when it's the last year of his life, or you could pick another time, but you bring us into a bar and you, you tap me on the shoulder and you say, Hey, right over there, that that's Pete Alexander. And maybe I know nothing about baseball. And you say he was a great, maybe I'm a huge fan and I'd love to get his autograph. What would we find? What would you tell me about how to approach him? Or do I just leave him alone? What do you think he would want? And what would that moment be like if we could go back in time and walk into a bar where he was? If I could go back to 1950 in St. Paul, Nebraska, and was in a bar and saw Pete Alexander there, I would be sad. I'd go up and ask him if I could shake his hand and then I'd leave him alone, I think. Um, I, I think at the very end of his life, there, there was one good final baseball moment. It wasn't in St. Paul. The uh, 1950 Phillies, the WizKids were in the World Series and somebody paid for Pete and a young companion to go to New York see the World Series. And uh, they were standing in standing room only area. That's the, that's the tickets they had. And somebody recognized him and took him up to the press box. And, and the, uh, the writers clustered around him. And they all wrote about him. He, he spoke at some banquets later and he got a lot of good press across the country. I'm glad that happened. I'm glad he, he felt that respect and that regard again. Uh, because he died not soon afterwards in, in St. Paul. So uh, some people said that trip took it out of him and, and finished him. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I'm, I'm glad he had that trip before he passed. For a guy like Alexander, who loved the game so much, and he recognized it, recognizes that it's a limited time. He says a man can't play baseball all of his life. And I wish I could get back in the game while I still have the stuff in me. And people were so fortunate, the fans back then, that he still did have some stuff. But he was never hit by a bullet or a shell fragment or anything, but nobody who was up at the front came back without being banged up. I mean, there was a story that uh, he injured his arm pulling the lanyard that the fire at his howitzer. That, that, as far as I can tell, just not the case. But, you know, he'd had very, very hard weeks of, of service. And then they marched into Germany as part of the army of occupation. Uh, he wasn't playing ball because of the middle of winter. So by the time he got back to the States, he'd been out of the game for uh, a year. He hadn't played much. He played some. He'd been through this hard physical uh, experience. At, at the front, he'd laid off since. So it's not surprising that he, he had a down year and that a lot of people had down years, but his physical problems just added up over the subsequent years. One of them was some measure of hearing loss, which I think you can attribute directly to being a sure. you know, artilleryman. Did he suffer from the flu? Did he catch the flu? No, as far as I could tell, he didn't. I found no mention of it. I found mention of uh, a number of deaths uh, of other uh, Doughboys in his regiment, but uh, I, I haven't come across um, 
an account where he was actually ill. So if not, that was lucky. Um, and, and they were in Germany and there doesn't seem to be as much fluid there among those troops as, as there was in France. I'm not a, I'm not a student of the, of the pandemic, but uh, his regiment seems to have come out of the flu uh, fairly well. Well, that's a mercy at least because he sure could use it. He, he had a tough life, great career, experienced the highs and lows, but Branch Rickey, the man who signed Jackie Robinson for the Dodgers said something that you uncovered again that, that is so poignant about him. He said, I doubt that I felt sorrier for any man who ever worked for me than I did for Alexander. When your readers finish your story here in the best team over there, how do you hope that they'll look at the full scope of Pete Alexander's career, his wartime service, and his pro baseball career so they get that fuller picture that you said he deserves and that was your job as a writer to deliver? Right. I, I hope people remember him as a, a great but troubled ball player. I hope they don't remember the movie made about him <laughs> because it's not nearly accurate. Uh, I hope they don't remember him as a drunk, as somebody who died alone. I hope they understand the, the scope of his life, the struggles, and that in, in some ways you can say he, he triumphed over his, his demons and his, and his troubles. Uh, because he could have come to a very bad end much sooner than he did pass. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't hold uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander up as a role model. I would hold him up as a model of a man who had his problems and fought them as well as he could for as long as he could. I hope they would remember that about him. I was glad to be able to see the full picture and not just have it associated in my mind as that tragic, really horrible biography of Ty Cobb was that just flat out lied about him. And I mentioned that book often. Tyke Hop, A Terrible Beauty with Charles Learson about restoring the truth to these guys and not just thinking them as people who are names on a page and we always like to pull a great man down and to jeer that player on another team that we don't like. It is so easy to look at something like a film and say, well, that must be it. And that's your impression of him as, as a, a belligerent drunk. Right. Uh, because any person's life is complicated. And, and Pete certainly was complicated. Um, he was a hero on the baseball diamond. And if you want to call him a hero on the battlefield, uh, fine, I, I won't dispute that. Uh, I don't think he would use that word to describe himself. I don't think he would have. I don't think any of them in that regiment or maybe in the army would think of themselves that way necessarily. Uh, I, I think he was a, a man who waited till he was called, but when he was called, he went and did his duty as best he could. And then he tried to get on with his life, which, which wasn't easy. It was not, but we can get the story of his life and learn from it here in Jim Leak's book. Jim, thank you so much for coming here today and sharing the best team over there with us today. 
I really enjoy your books. I enjoy your observations of how baseball, which is the American pastime and never more so than in this period, was woven into the war. It tells us how really fortunate we are today that a war doesn't have to touch every aspect of our lives. We can tune out the news channels. We, we don't have to serve. We don't have rationing as we did in the world wars and things like that. Most of us are very fortunate that we can, we can be isolated from these troubles. And so it was so really, really special to me to be able to meet Grover Cleveland Alexander. No longer will I confuse him with the gentleman you see back here. That's a bio of the president back there, Grover Cleveland, the man who served two non-consecutive terms. So here's the book where you get the Grover Cleveland Alexander story. I think it's a great bio and I hope listeners and viewers will pick it up and enjoy it. Get to know this pitcher, get to know him in his highs and lows and get to hear the toll that the Great War took not just on him, but on Americans of all stripes 100 years ago. Jim, I wish you the best of luck with this book. And I want to thank you again. It's really an honor to me to have my name on the back cover recommending it. Well, thank you. And thank you for your interest. And thank you for sharing Pete's story. Because I think it's important, particularly now, because you're right. We can step away from all that. We don't, we don't have to know about it. And I think that's a disservice to every man and woman in the armed forces. If we, if we send them out there without knowing what it is they do or how it can affect them, then we do them a disservice, we do the country a disservice. Uh, I think it's important that we understand the, what they go through and, and not look away from it. I think it's important to look at it. And, and I hope that's what people will do with Pete's story. So thank you, I appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I can't wait for your next book. Thank you. Again, the book is The Best Team Over There, The Untold Story of Grover Cleveland Alexander and the Great War. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our Mark I tank turn time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Jim Leak for joining us. It's always so great to speak with him, and I always learn something from his books. This time, we all learned about this legend who struggled so much after serving his country to get back into the game he loved. I'm really honored to have my name on the back cover of the best team over there, and I appreciate Jim asking me to do it. I want you all to know that I wouldn't sign my name to just any book, just like I wouldn't have just anyone on the History Author Show. So if I put my name on this book, you know it's good. Remember to follow Jim at the Twitter handles Jim Leak and WW1Baseball. You can also find me there at History Dean and track me down on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, as well as subscribing to our YouTube channel if you enjoy this time travel experience in multimedia. If you're interested in more about baseball stateside during this period, Check out my conversation with David Petrusha. That's about his book, Rothstein, The Life, Times, and Murder of the Criminal Genius Who Fixed the 1919 World Series. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio, iTunes, watching via YouTube, or wherever you enjoy the show. Until our next trip into the past together, on behalf of Jim Leak, I say thank you for time traveling with us today and have a great week.
alone I saw Georgie Cohn Somewhere on Long Acre Square Crowds passed him by I heard Georgie sigh Nobody noticed him there I asked him why he didn't smile He said in that old Cohen style Oh, New York ain't New York anymore How I miss those old pals of mine The sawdust is gone from the floor Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline On the east side, west side Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore I remember, he said, when I first hit Broadway New York was New York and the white way was gay There were Sherry's and Murray's and Rector's, you know The Claridge and Churchill's and Delmonico's Music and laughter, the prices were right A ten dollar bill meant a wonderful night And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared When the newsboys yelled extra, war is declared But the hand that held glasses of wine in the air Were the first to hold guns when I rode over there The boys won the war and came home from the fight The last night on Broadway was almost his night But ever since then, it's a different street Gone are the places where the gang used to meet We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same On the east side, west side Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guy 